Welcome to the Element of Surprise. Happy 4th of July, motherfuckers. This is the Element of Surprise, a mentally irregular podcast. I am your host, Mr. Chadwick J. Suet, and we're going to go over, being that it's the 4th of July, a brief history of clumsy American patriotism. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to talk about people blowing their hands off. Not necessarily. I mean, yes, at some point in time, I will be heavily discussing people getting their hands blown off, but that might not, that, who says that has to be a 4th of July thing? That just might be something I talk about at regular, regular intervals. Uh, first thing we're going to talk about, you know, this is the land, they, this is the so-called land of the free, and the home of the uh, brave, but uh, it might also be the land of the ignorant dumb shits. So, I'm going to give you a brief history of the clumsy American patriotism that I myself have lived through. Now, America is a land where they say anything is possible. A place where the viewpoint of the most ignorant, dumb person is literally as important as the scholar whose uh, jar filled with teeth told him where Hillary Clinton's liver clone is being harvested. You know, so I mean, you could be like the a complete idiot and you could be like the biggest uh, conspiracy, conspiracy theorist and your, your opinion is valued. So that, that, that's, that's what we're told of in this country. But let me, let me be clear. American liberty is nothing if not complicated. We get to murder you if you fit a suspect's description, but we can't do shit about it if you decide to spread your idiot seed and create a welfare family of 43 only to leave them because it's something you never asked for. We think the poor deserve every misery they suffer, but the unfuckable deserve loose, hot girls with no standards. 
we can't ever agree on anything because half of you, and you absolutely don't know which half you're in, because neither do I, grew up learning how to disagree. We're not stupid so much as we are unable to ever know or admit when something isn't smart. Speaking of not smart, it wouldn't take it would take a real idiot to try to deconstruct 40 years of American spirit using only examples from pop culture. But I myself am so goddamn American that I lack the self-awareness to know when I'm talking about myself. And that's the first thing that you need to know. We as a country are incoherent, contradictory, and frustrating. And we have been this way ever since a guy who owned 600 people helped start the country by writing the words, all men are created equal. So, let's begin. The 1980s, or as I call it, America is the fucking toughest and the fucking hardest. So, in the 1980s, the best American that you could hope to be was an unkillable death machine. We had the most tanks, the vainiest penises, and we were leading all other countries in atomic city murders by two. We didn't really need bombs, since if you dropped a single one of us anywhere, such as Little China, the 25th century, the planet Mongo, the entire place was seemingly fucked. If you run an evil empire at any point in time or space, your reign is over an hour and a half after the 80s American crash lands in your cyber arena and shouts, Where am I? Why isn't this music rock and roll? Proof of that? In 1984, there was a movie called Red Dawn. Red Dawn starred Patrick Swayze, and it showed Russia what would happen if they ever invaded our great country. And no, it wasn't a movie about our brave people maintaining their dignity during a military occupation. It was about a small group of high school kids disappearing into the woods to launch an unstoppable guerrilla campaign against Soviets. It was a warning. If you come to America, our children will become the knight and swim in your blood. It seems like standard anti-Soviet propaganda nowadays, and it fed into the fantasy that you could kill an entire army by shooting a couple of guys running behind trees and then repeating that process as necessary. But if you go back and pay attention to the hand-wavy setup for Red Dawn, it's not really a movie about how tough we are. It's a movie about how everyone hates us and how the feeling was mutual. Let's move to the 90s, or as I call it, come on pussies, no one wants a piece of this America. And let's be honest, America was having a tough time getting motivated in the 90s. The Soviet Union was now gone, probably thanks to Red Dawn, and if we weren't the mortal enemies of an, emul of an evil communist empire, who were we? We'd spent a decade building bombs and telling ourselves how smart and heroic we were, do we were for doing so. And I grew up at a time when you learned that if you're holding a bag of awesome explosives, you start thinking real hard about what might need some blowing up. The best America could come up with in the 90s was Iraq, and with barely any credible reason whatsoever. Everyone was immediately and unanimous, unanimously on board with the idea of blowing it the fuck off the planet. We were told by our president and the media how Desert Storm would be a glorious war against a dangerous military force, but we obliterated them in four days. We have our finest strategic minds plotting out tank battalion maneuvers while Apache helicopters and cruise missiles destroyed whatever they wanted. Meanwhile, confused and hungry Iraqi soldiers were running up to CNN uh, reporters and television crews to see if they knew where that they were to go to surrender. It was the Olympic Dream Team level of bully domination, only with Tomahawk missiles humiliating our enemies instead of Charles Barkley, both of which cost this country $1.3 every time they leave home. This was six years after Red Dawn portrayed America as a fair opponent for Cuba, and here we were rolling over the world's fourth largest standing army on their home turf. It was like America had been training for the heavyweight championship of the world, and then our opponent was suddenly replaced by a homeless amputee, and we never considered changing that game plan. It's very telling about how all the superheroes invented in the 90s were sweet-ass swarms of weapons, and none of us remember the poor, underpowered villains that they fought. Every corner for every issue was just the hero posing awesomely by themselves, because that's what America was like at the time. A cyber death soldier with no true nemesis. Then the 2000s hit. Or as I call the 2000s, we are a somber people of quiet, respectful contemplation. And if you haven't figured it out by now, each person's idea of patriotism has always been wildly different. It seems hysterical, naive, or fascist to everyone else. 
But then 9-11 happened, and all those conflicting ideals got wadded into one giant, uncriticizable love of America. Nobody knew how to deal with it, except for to find out where the attackers were from and unleash the full power of our rage upon their country, or at least a country nearby the country we thought they were from. So we went back to war with Iraq and made more playing cards about it. Nobody really believed the excuses given by the famously dishonest war criminals sending our soldiers to Iraq again, but it didn't take a lot of mental gymnastics to convince ourselves it was, you know, something to do with 9-11. Because at the time, we were willing to accept any tribute to the t Twin Towers, no matter how dumb, klutzy, or unquestioningly stupid it was. And we did it with complete earnestness. And, and that lasted a fucking decade. That lasted a whole goddamn decade. Then you jump to the 2010s, or what I refer to as, everything's lame and we're the worst because we deserve this. By the time 2010s came along, the lies we had been telling ourselves for decades were being debunked too easily and too often. Every scrap of information turned into a bitter, a bitter battle between cynics and cultists, and patriotism as we know it became a thing madmen screamed about after a black athlete came out against evil. Tributes that would have been tear-jerking ten years ago were now instant punchlines. Remember when SpaghettiOs uh, remembered the lives of the lost at Pearl Harbor by tweeting out uh, a can of SpaghettiOs with their logo, which is a smiling piece of pasta holding a, uh, United, holding a uh, United States flag? Well, in 2003, our nation's leaders would have seen that and said touching words from a touchstone of American flavor. Now, Beefaroni has six hours to release a statement, or we will have to assume that it, go that it now stands with the enemy. In 2013, it was so embarrassing that they deleted it the next morning, which means SpaghettiOs actually unhonored the men and women who died at Pearl Harbor. And it was less offensive at the time than they when they honored them. It was more offensive that they unhonored them. This, it's, it's like this now, it's like this now, every time anyone tries to invoke the American spirit to sell something. Remember a few years ago when Budweiser changed its name to America? 20 years ago we would have cried Dr. Doom tears at such an honor, but in 2016 we were way too jaded about it. We're all like, um, technically shouldn't that fucking be Belgium? Hashtag fix that for you and also maybe don't bounce names off beer cans customers too stupid and drunk to avoid marketing surveys. Hashtag you had one job. Um, and what I'm trying to say by this is that America, American sincerity rather, is dead. We euthanized it the moment the two towers of Coke Zero remembered the 9-11 attacks. America is constantly changing is what I'm trying to say to you. And we'll hopefully, hopefully have time to try out a few more fun personalities before we all roast alive. And speaking of roasting, Hulk Hogan and his family are walking around with the flesh of indoor-outdoor basketballs right now. Brooke Hogan is five years younger than me, and she looks like I could be drinking buddies with her grandkids. She lost her skin in a bet with a wizard and a shrew, and I'm now realizing why I should explain why I brought this up. I brought it up because Hulk Hogan, at any point in time of the history of time, was and is the most American thing there ever was and is. In the 80s, his wrestling theme song, which I played for you at the beginning of this episode, was literally the words, I am a real American, and he proudly hid his baldness underneath a red, white, and blue handkerchief. In a time that we all cared about was destroying our enemies, he dropped his taint and his balls onto their necks. And as, an American, as America changed, the Hulkster's legacy changed with it into a mockery of our country so elegant we will never see its likes again. Now, the Hulkster told children about the power of hard work and healthy living. But his own body happened to be filled with so much cocaine and horse steroids that I'm sure his waist had to be buried in concrete to drown out its own human, inhuman screaming. He fought staged battles against opponents who never had a chance, which means even in the pretense of pro wrestling, there was this weird second layer of deception. It's like an allegory for every single American military conflict written by an author who doesn't care if he's being obvious. And the Hulkster went on to produce an album with his mortal enemy, Jimmy Mouth of the South Heart, in an era where we were still pretending pro wrestling was real. There's a rap about stalking bikini girls in a pack of horny men. And then there's a song where he serenades a dead cancer boy with the promise of tag-teaming up with him in heaven after he himself also dies. And then on the album, the only thing separating those two wildly different songs is a song about willingly giving yourself sexually to the Hulkster, not performed by him, but rather to Hulk Hogan by someone. 
It's so genuine, so crazy, and so knowingly full of shit at the same time, and I honestly don't know if he or we as Hulkamaniacs could ever tell those three things apart. It was as if the American... It was as... It was as American as fighting drug runners on a speedboat, which is also something the Hulkster did. It was a TV show he filmed in the time about the time called, I believe it was called Tropic Thunder, which is not, not the movie. Now, like our great nation, Hulk Hogan championed moral values while hilariously and intentionally failing to live up to them. His most common advice was to was to say your prayers and take your vitamins, which turned out to be more like comforting superstitions than profound ideals. Obviously, as a full-grown adult man with my own questionable outlook on pretty much everything, none of us should have ever expected Terry Balea to live up to the virtuous standards of Hulk Hogan. But morally speaking, it's hard to blow it more than saying the hard N-word on a sex tape you made with your friend's wife. The Hulkster pounded herpes and horse DNA into a woman, married to a man named Bubba the Love Sponge, and then his pillow talk to her was explaining that he was a racist. Like, exactly in those words. It was a magnificent collision of the worst things a human can do. But you might be thinking, none of that's necessarily American, and you're right. But the fact that he sued Gawker for $100 million for telling people about it is completely American. And the fact that a billionaire was secretly backing the lawsuit as a way to steer the government and control the press made it record-level breaking, record-breaking levels of American. The world will boil in the fishless soup before anyone will ever satirize a country where their very existence is per as perfectly as the Hulkster has. If our monument builders weren't cowards, they would build a giant Hulk Hogan statue behind the Statue of Liberty, and he'd be using her robe to, write, to wipe extramarital extra sex off his racist dick. Now that I got that out of the way, happy fourth. So, again, this is the Element of Surprise. You can check us out at, uh, well, let's see, we got a YouTube page now. So there's the uh, YouTube channel, the Element of Surprise on YouTube. Uh, you can check out the video I made about the Reagan mug. Or pretty much uh, just me dancing in a Goodwill store. Um, also, to listen to the, uh, check out the Facebook page at www.facebook.com backslash EOS Mentally Irregular. And of course, the podcast itself is hosted at www.podbean.com. Now, did you know there's a new Axe body wash specifically designed for video gamers? Yeah, it's official. It's a thing. Xbox thinks it's time for their gamers, their gamer base, to take a shower. Microsoft and Axe, or uh, Axe is called Lynx overseas, they're launching a range of Xbox-themed shower products to, quote, lift your game. Xbox Lynx, which includes a radioactive green 3-in-1 shower gel, launches in Australia and New Zealand in this September. And it's said to, quote, KO bad odors with the refreshing scent of sage and patchouli. Just in case you didn't already smell like a basement that you smoke a shit ton of weed in and then veg out to Dark Side of the Moon. Keeping in mind that Axe is the same company who pulls ideas and scent names straight out of the How to Be a Rapist guidebook, such as Thai Massage and Night Attack. You know, Night Attack, for when you want to smell like the reason women have 911 auto-dialed on their phone. Or Ex-Friends, which I imagine came with a free copy of any Jay-Z album and a white fedora. So, there you have it. We once lived in a country, nay, a world, where the idea was to look clean, live clean, gen and generally be clean. But now it's about smelling like bong water and weighing the options between having a girl plan girlfriend or playing Fortnite. But the sad thing is that in 2019, that's actually how you get a girlfriend. You sit in the basement, smoke some weed, light up some sage, and play Fortnite. I, I remember going outside and meeting new people. Making adventures as they came, not just waiting for something to happen. I once walked the distance from Delmont, PA to Vandergrift, PA just to hang out with a girl. That's how it was done, kids. You didn't have texting. Phones had cords and hung on walls. Video games had pre-scripted plot lines because there was no online gaming. Sure, I sound like a bitter old man stuck in his ways and just complaining about the world changing around me, but guess what? I lived this long to see what was going to happen next, and if I'm being completely transparent, I am very disappointed. Very disappointed. Now excuse me, I need to go shower and use my new anger and shame scented Axe body wash. <clears throat>
At this moment, I'd like to uh, encourage all of you to check out a, uh, a Fireside Chat podcast hosted by Mr. Ryan McCormick. And you can find that on uh, Libsyn.com as well as check out the A Fireside Chat Facebook page. So, a while back, uh, you know, everyone remembers The Wizard of Oz. Did you know that they made a movie called Return to Oz based off the second Oz book? And Return to Oz wasn't just a sequel to one of the most beloved children's films of all time. It was also, unlike the first one, a Disney film. Based off Disney history, that means there should be twice as much singing, twice as much dancing, and twice as much adorable characters. Right? That's what Disney normally goes for. Well, let me tell you right now. Nope! Do not... Do you remember those terrifying flying monkeys from The Wizard of Oz? Well, apparently someone at Disney decided, forget all the rest, we just need more of that. Because everything about this movie seems designed to give you nightmares. For starters, we find out that the happy ending of the first classic film was secretly terrifying. Because right after Dorothy came back from the Land of Oz, her aunt and uncle decided to take her to a quack doctor for electroshock therapy. They wanted to zap Dorothy's brain with electricity. Because that's the first thing, and that's the very first thing we find out in the film. Later, Dorothy returns to find Oz more wrecked than the world she's living in. The Yellow Brick Road and the Emerald City are in complete ruins. Her best friends have been turned to stone. And, by the way, Oz is now policed by a gang of deformed, rollerblading freaks known as the Wheelers. Um, at this point, it's pretty clear that Return to Oz is just one washed-up actor away from being based on a Stephen King novel. But shit goes from bad for children to inappropriate for all ages when Dorothy's imprisoned by a witch who has her own collection of disembodied heads and intends to cut Dorothy's head off and add it to the collection. Also, the actress playing Dorothy is only like 10 in this movie. They probably did that because if they had used a teenager, Return to Oz would have easily been mistaken for a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And I know that this girl is scarred for life after being in this movie too, because she'd have to be. I'd like to now invite everyone listening to uh, check out 4AM Knows All of My Secrets, hosted by Ryan McCormick and Tiffany Moore, also available on Libsyn, and you can uh, visit their page on Facebook.com. It's an excellent podcast. It's one of my personal favorites. Uh, they're in a little bit of a hiatus right now, but keep your eyes open for that. Um, at this point in time, I want to talk to you about two movie robots who sucked at their jobs. Number one is Jinx from Space Camp. I remember... Okay, let's go back in time, shall we? I remember my mom renting a VHS copy of the movie Space Camp for me and my younger brother when we were kids. And I'm pretty sure she did so because she only saw the word space and a robot on the cover and decided that we'd enjoy it enough to leave her alone for 80 minutes. She wasn't wrong. The movie Space Camp did only one thing well. It conceived every gullible kid in the mid-80s that going to Space Camp would be the most awesome thing ever while never once mentioning that they'd most likely end up in Huntsville, Alabama, sharing a dorm dorm with 40 other children suffering from intestinal cramping brought on by a diet of grits and freeze-dried ice cream. The movie also gave us Jinx, a small, apparently sentient robot who was hilarious and endearing when you're a child, but when you're an adult, realize exists for no discernible reason other to initiate the plot, which is to cause what would be the worst public relation crisis in any organization has ever faced by launching children into space. Now, despite launching kids into orbit, the film raises a number of other questions about Jinx. Mainly, who thought it would be a good idea to program a robot to launch a shuttle, but also give it the wide-eyed personality and intelligence of a toddler? Having artificial intelligence is all fine and good, but ideally, you want to give your creation the ability to consider at least one of the hundreds upon hundreds of horrifying consequences that could occur as a result of its actions before you let it roam around the rocket controlling computers. It just seemed like a bad idea. In reality, not one of those characters should have survived, and the news would crop up again every year as we celebrate the 20th or 30th and so on and so forth anniversaries of when a fucking robot shot kids into space where they promptly panicked and died. The second robot who was terrible at his job is Ed 209 from the classic and Element of Surprise fully endorsed film Robocop. Now the Ed 209 is the brainchild of the most sinister man in all of future Detroit, Dick Jones. And it is supposed to be the most kick-ass fully armored, steroid-using, chicken-looking thing ever. Inspired probably by anime and the walkers from Return of the Jedi, Ed 209 was a hard-ass, even if it didn't quite work right. 
So what's the problem? Well, I've always wondered, in regards to ED-209, even if it didn't malfunction, what exactly was it planning on doing? It doesn't have hands or any ability to transport people to jail. It just has giant machine guns. There was actually a more peaceful way to end the scenario, or does ED-209 always prepare to just gun down whoever it perceives as committing a crime? If these had been mass-produced and set free in town, could they even issue traffic tickets or just blow the shit out of people who double park? And no, I won't forget mentioning that this thing was ultimately defeated because it couldn't walk down a flight of stairs. Alright, uh, let's also not to forget to check out the, uh, the boys at McSauce, Paul, Ian, and Matt. And uh, they are available on Podomatic, as well as their YouTube channel. So... Check out McSauce, the comic book podcast, and uh, see what they've got going on. A um, little bit of inf information for you. Did you know that pelicans are like the sarlacc pit of birds? The pelican's defining feature is that they have the largest beak in the world. And they basically eat by scooping up a bucket full of dirty water, and then they strain out everything except for anything in there that might be edible. It's kind of like taking a big bite of dirt to find a potato. That doesn't make the pelican an asshole, of course. There's many, many other reasons the pelican is an asshole. And when we say pelicans eat anything, I literally mean anything. If it fits in their gaping maw, it's fair game. Besides fish, amphibians, and crustaceans, pelicans have been known to chow down on pigeons, ducks, kelp, gulls, swift terns, and African penguins. And that's also fine. Birds kill other birds all the time. But that's just the thing. Pelicans don't kill. They just swallow. Again, you remember the Sarlacc from Return of the Jedi and how the whole horror of the thing was that it didn't bite you or tear into you, it just swallowed you whole and you would be slowly digested over a thousand years? That's how the pelican eats. So somewhere in the world right now is a fuzzy little hatchling crammed into a pelican's stomach, anguishing through a gruesome, protracted death. Is there any fate more inhuman than slowly suffocating in a putrid acid sack of rotting fish? Something... Smothering in a living bag of vomit while greasy acids scald your skin, searing its way into your every crack and orifice, there is the famous Pelican Eats a Pigeon video on YouTube that got me curious about this. That's why I looked into it. But one thing I hadn't noticed originally was that the swallowing of the live thrashing bird occurs in a park in front of terrified children. And remember, this was at a park where the animals get food regularly. In fact, the bird was being fed bread at that very moment. This pelican wasn't hungry. He was just a murderous prick. Do you really think that the pigeon scratching, pecking, and defecating inside his mouth for 20 minutes was, it, was in any way pleasant to him? How could that meal have possibly been worth the effort? Unless, of course, you need to ingest a regular supply of innocent bird souls to keep your own feathers shiny. I don't know. But it's what it led, that's where that led me. Don't forget to... Uh, Check out the Case in Point podcast hosted by Mr. Justin Case and Jody Yearden. Um, available on Audioboom, and I also believe they have a YouTube channel now. Make sure you check them out. If you like what I do, you'll like the previous four podcasts I mentioned. All right, now we're down to the real bread and butter, kids. This is what I really wanted to talk about tonight. So, now listen, I know, I know I've claimed to be mentally irregular. And that a lot, a whole fucking lot of what I say on this podcast and honestly in my regular everyday life looks and sounds insane to the average person. But believe me when I tell you that I in no way, shape, or form can even come close to holding a candle to some of the weird shit that comes from the minds of true geeks and superfans. So without further ado, I present to you my take on fan art and fan fiction. Now, I fully understand that. As a fan of something, you'll never inevitably want to either draw it, be it, fuck it, or all three. In the realm of drawing it, there are amazing amounts of incredibly strange and morbid fan art genres. Everything from fat Harry Potter to John Arbuckle's struggles against demonic Garfield. There exists uh, fan arts of Incredible Hulk taking incredible shits. Batman just chilling on rooftops eating chips. My Little Pony apparently reimagined as the psychotic murderers of their own people. And of course, post-apocalyptic Charlie Brown. Because, why not? There's a fucking Zootopia fan comic about abortion. It exists. I've read it. But, if we're going to start anywhere, let's start with Bob Ross and the Joy of Painting. Now, 
I loved Bob Ross. I loved his show, The Joy of Pain. I never watched to learn to paint scenic vistas dotted with happy little trees, as he always said. I watched because Bob Ross was literally Xanax with an afro. He was so kind and soothing that he had to have been up to some very nefarious shit. I know in my heart of hearts that his soft-spoken kindness masked a pure fucking psychopath. That's probably by why Bob Ross fan art, because it exists and there is such a thing, goes in the opposite direction when portraying the guy who looks like he sells acid out of the back of a van. Why show him blandly standing beside an easel when you can depict Bob Ross as a ripped Viking riding a dragon? There's a burning village in the background. The dragon probably did it, but it's fun to imagine that Bob Ross literally blazed a path of destruction in his quest to tame a dragon. How about a painting of Bob Ross riding his unicorn steed hurriedly, hurriedly towards his studio so that he can, can complete his art? His art cannot wait. It must be painted, and the only creature of myth able to get Bob Ross to his art in timely fashion is the unicorn of legend. Also, this unicorn shares Bob's hairstyle because apparently the, the unicorn is Bob's son. Bob rides his son, who is a unicorn, to work. It's just more efficient that way because they're both going downtown. Now, other artists take their passion for reimagining Bob Ross as much, much more grandiose figure than he was by tattooing their thigh with a crude image of Bob Ross firing automatic rifles while riding atop a giraffe. Then, of course, some artists use their talent to capture the truth of Bob Ross, to, tr to show him as the human he was and not a wild myth. Finally, there's a painting of Bob Ross in his natural state. Which, of course, by, of course, I mean a giant version of himself stomping through one of his own scenic vistas dotted with happy little trees and using his laser eyes to cause forest fires and lay waste to the terrain around him. Now, moving on to that Zootopia abortion thing. Zootopia is a movie about a cute and wholesome... It's, it's about as cute and wholesome as a film can get. In its most controversial stances being rabbits can be cops and sloths are meant for the DMV. But then furry fandom took over, and someone out there decided because the heroes are a guy fox and a bunny girl that they absolutely had to fuck each other, and couldn't have gone in possibly any other conceivable direction. Now, one particularly warped fan combined X-rated Zootopia fantasies with their hard-lined beliefs on anti-abortion, and created a story titled, I Will Survive which you can read online, and I highly suggest you do, because it is the type of insanity that even I had a rough time processing. It's the story of Judy Hopps, the rabbit cop from the movie, learning that she's having Nick Wilde, the fox from the movie's baby. Nick's ecstatic about the news, but New Judy is not. She is not ecstatic. In fact, she doesn't want to be pregnant at all. And not only because it's part fox and might be born so big that she literally explodes, or that it's an unnatural hybrid beast that simply should not be allowed to exist in any place at any time ever. No, her number one reason for wanting an abortion is that she's up for a promotion and really doesn't need some yowling fox rabbit monster mucking up her climb the, up the career ladder. Now, Nick our wholesome protagonist, reacts to the news in a calm and mature manner of being absolutely horrified and righteously indignant. He, he can't even believe that Judy would even consider an abortion, and he argues that Judy, had she been aborted, the big conspiracy that they unraveled in the movie would remain unraveled, and he would be as empty and unloved as ever, com complete with him descending into full mania by screaming, I beg you, please let your light continue to shine through him or her. Judy, of course, sticks to her guns, even slashing Nick in the face when he accuses her of killing their baby for her career. After that, Nick angrily calls her out for committing premeditated sin and then storms out. Their relationship and the possibility of any sequel to Zootopia now in ruins. And at the very end of the story, Nick tells Judy not to worry about him, tearfully claiming, I will survive. Yes, the comic's title isn't about the baby or even the pro-choice bunny who'd rather bust bad guys than change diapers. It's about the man being right, having been wronged by some silly girl who believes my body my choice. Apparently, the author is planning a sequel called See You Next Wednesday. And there's only a picture, the only picture for the comic they have drawn is a close-up of Judy's tear-filled face as a teaser. So, yeah, that's a fucking thing! Someone sat down, wrote out the plot for that, took time to draw the characters and put them in that situation and then put it out there for other people to find and read. But even so, still not the weirdest fucking thing out there. For a parent, for example, 
Did you know that apparently people really love drawing Wolverine from the X-Men, getting lost in the woods, and running into Freddie Mercury from Queen? Yeah, that's real. Look it up. Somebody decided that the best way to get work at, Mar at Marvel Comics would be to pitch them a scene in which Wolverine <laughs> randomly walks into the woods only to encounter the lead singer of Queen, Freddie Mercury, with all his mustached glory. The most surprising part is that they, there's no, that's just where it ends. For all we know, Wolverine and, Wolverine and Freddy went on epic adventures together, or they fought over who had manlier chest hair. But we'll never find out because it just Wolverine walks into the forest, he sees Freddie Mercury, and he exclaims, Freddie Mercury, and then it's over. The one-page pairing has somehow inspired many copycats as well. Each one of the same basic setup. Uh, they all, Logan sees Freddie Mercury, he's surprised to see him, and fade to black. That's all of it. Sometimes it's a zombie Wolverine getting his head knocked off by Freddie Mercury's rock star theatrics, while other times it's Freddie Mercury sitting on a golden throne wearing a flowing golden robe. There's even one out there where Wolverine and Freddie Mercury are a pair of Jar Jar Binkses for whatever fucking reason. Whatever the reasoning behind it is, it's 100% pure gold and needs to be seen by as many eyes as possible. Now, this next one takes some splaining. I got some splaining to do. So, in the 90s, there was a cartoon I talked about on the uh, Forgotten Cartoons episode called SWAT Cats, which was basically about anthropomorphic cat men who uh, flew around in a jet. On uh, the Sci-Fi Channel, there was also a show called Eureka about the town of Eureka... Um, it was based light, loosely based off Stephen King works and everything, and it was kind of like a comedic drama, satirical sci-fi show. So, some fan out there, somebody out in the world, said to themselves, "You know what? You know what? You got to put together. You know what would make the best crossover mashup? Eure that show Eureka from the Sci-Fi Channel and SWAT Cats, that cartoon from the '90s when I was growing up. So they created Eureka Cats." The plot of which is the residents of Eureka shack up with anatomically correct SWAT cats. Now, Eureka was a show, again, about a town of full of mad scientists doing wacky experiments. And the SWAT cats, again, were crime-fighting alien cat people. Eureka cats is the epic tale, uh, their epic tale of erotic adventure. And I very, very sadly, mind you, do mean epic. So, it starts off as a typical day in the neighborhood when the scientists of Eureka notice a strange craft in the sky above. The craft lands and it turns out to be piloted by Jake Clawson and Chance Furlong, the two SWAT cats from the show, who suffer from chemical exposure. So the cats are quarantined, and Beverly, the town psychiatrist from the show, watches them take a chemical shower together. Now, let's ignore the fact that someone took SWAT cats and Eureka and jammed them together. Um, this particular story does climb up to a level of creepiness that even I had a rough time accepting because it becomes perfectly clear to any reader that the SWAT cats are anatomically correct. And when I say anatomically correct, I mean that in the worst possible way. Here's a direct line from the story. She hadn't been able to notice the barbs they'd mentioned on either of them. Clearly they weren't that prominent, at least not from a distance. Yeah, their penises are spiky and barbed, like a real cat's. That's the, why the author felt the need to include this in the story? I have no clue. They talk like humans, they walk on two legs, they wear clothes, they can turn on a goddamn faucet with their paws, and they pilot a fucking jet. But they gotta have spiked penises like a cat. They're also so unlike real cats that they didn't need the spiky penises at all, and yet here we are. So the story goes on, and Beverly and the rest of the town quickly fall under the cat's sexual spell, as we get to human-cat pairing after human-cat pairing. Oh, and the idea of human-cat sex is too much for you? Let, the, let me explain that there's plenty of cat-on-cat -cat sex, too, which is stranger to me because there are only two SWAT cats in the damn story, and apparently they're bisexual. Here's more of the story. Oh yeah, Jake shuddered, his hands tightening around Chance's hips before he shifted his attention to the full erection near his muzzle. This goes on... Now, listen. This goes on for 30 chapters. There are 390,000 words. I, I had to, for my own mental sake, copy and paste this onto uh, Microsoft Word and do a word count on it for my own, just so I knew exactly how long this garbage was going on. But for comparison's sake, 390,000 words 
is roughly 100,000 more words than the first three Harry Potter books combined. This isn't just a fanfic. This is somebody's fucking opus. It takes 7,000 of those words to even hint at the idea of sex, which means that the author felt that cats fucking people with spiky cat penises required tens of backstory for us to be properly eased into it. And it only gets weirder, too, because fan fiction of all types tends to read like the dream journal of lifelong mental patients. For example, remember that one time that, that Slimer from the Ghostbusters raped Sam from Transformers while Wolverine Jean Grey had scat sex with the Ghostbuster? No? Well, here's that one for you. The setup of that Transformers X-Men Ghostbusters smash-up sex story titled A New Shade of Green isn't all that much worse than, the, than any of the actual Transformer movies that Michael Bay put together. Uh, Sam Witwicky, Shia LaBeouf's character, I'm just going to say LaBeouf because I don't know how to fucking pronounce that guy's fucking name. Uh, anyway, Sam Witwicky is suffering from the earliest midlife crisis in history, so after the Transformers bring peace to Earth, Sam finds himself unemployed and out of money and without a girlfriend, so he skips town and naturally joins the Ghostbusters. Because, sure, fuck it, why not? His first mission, of course, takes him to the Sedgwick Hotel where he encounters Slimer. Uh... The, for those of you who aren't familiar with Slimer and the Ghostbusters, uh, first off, watch fucking Ghostbusters. And secondly, Slimer was the annoyingly wacky green ghost who was the designated comic relief in the cartoon about the movie starring Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. So, a mere six lines into A New Shade of Green, which again is the actual title by the way, we get this. When he found Slimer, and boy did he ever, he had his ghostly cock out. He was pissing on room service. That's an actual line from the, from the book. That's six sentences into the, into the story. Now, what follows is Slimer unveiling a three-foot ghost penis, which grows to over four feet when erect. He proceeds to then rape Sam Witwicky, then hit him when he dares to cry out Bumblebee's name. And because it's fan fiction, Sam naturally decides he loves all of this because in the world of fan fiction, it is very common for one's sexual horizons to be broadened via some kind of horrific nightmare assault, and the act of being raped, if nothing else, is a real eye-opener. Eventually, Slimer completely mutates into a six-foot green penis without a body. Just a stage five, free-roaming dick. And by this point, Sam is rapidly losing blood and begging for death, which, in my opinion, is ridiculous, because he would just turn into a ghost, and Slimer would probably end up raping that, too. Meanwhile, Janet... A worker at Ghostbusters headquarters who did not exist before this thing was written, and I'm pretty sure was the author confusing the name of Janine Melnitz, uh, has sex with a mysterious woman who just shows up and gets naked. And this is barely connected to the Sam Slimer tale. It almost feels like a whole different story just tacked in there by the author to satisfy some imaginary word count requirement they made up for themselves. Um, but soon the two girls are joined by Steve from Accounting, who actually is Logan, who prefers to be called Wolverine, and has an adamantium skeleton. The woman then reveals herself as Jean Grey, and what I'm saying here, dear listeners, is that erotic internet fanfiction is a magical world where anything is possible. So anyway, now that the X-Men are involved in this mess, Jean Grey shits onto, into Janet's mouth, and Janet eats it. Wolverine then literally fills the entire room with shit, and the three of them suffocate and drown, neatly tying the story up... <laughs> Into it, into a pack, into a nice, like, nice package. It, it it takes out the only loose end in the story. Soon afterward, the government receives an anonymous tip from a dying Sam Witwicky to nuke not only New York, but Stillwater, which was a minor Nevada town used in one Transformers uh, comic in 2003. And of course, they immediately act on this tip and completely obliterate both cities, leaving no survivors. Which, in my opinion, is the best way to end a story ever. That while being easily the most insane thing I'd come across in some time, still didn't compare to what I consider to be the benchmark of all fan fiction. And of course, I'm talking about Harry Potter fan fiction. And yes, not just any Harry Potter fan fiction. I mean, specifically, that one fan story where a giant squid brings the Hogwarts castle to orgasm. The castle. Not the people residing in said castle. The title of this story was first encounter, and the story begins with the line, Hogwarts sighed, and it echoed within its empty halls. The first line of first encounter was not meant to be metaphorical. Hogwarts castle, the school, literally just sighed, because it's alive, you see, and very, very lonely. The students have all left for the summer, and silence enters its halls. If it weren't for the fact that we're talking about a goddamn building, it would be positively heartbreaking. 
You know who else is lonely? The giant squid that occupies the Black Lake surrounding the castle. Unbelievably, this writer gives the squid a backstory, other than, you know, being a goddamn squid. Another line from the story. His huge eyes stared mournfully at his very large tentacles. At one time, he had dreams of being an actor, but those dreams were never quite realized, and the squid needed something else to pass the time. One guess. One guess what it chose to do. Hogwarts watched the giant squid approach and felt apprehension well up in its kitchen. The room, of course, in any building where the most apprehension builds. What are you doing? Just trust me, the squid replied, caressing Hogwarts' outer walls. I'm not ready, Hogwarts exclaimed, trying to push the qu giant squid away with, with magic. Hogwarts, you're lonely. I'm lonely. We don't have to be. Besides, you can't go around manipulating your staircases all day. <gasps> you know about that? Everyone does. Sort of. I'm sorry. What? What was that you just asked? Why, yes. A giant squid is seducing a castle, complete with a masturbation joke so that will make you quiver with nausea the next time you get on a flight of stairs. Honestly, it's very tempting just to read the entire completely batshit crazy story here, but I'm going to restrain myself. Unlike the squid. The story goes on. He began to caress a window, teasing it open. Hogwarts sighed, the fight leaving. She relaxed, allowing the tentacle inside, where it brushed against the inner walls before settling on the stone floor. It fastened the suction, the squid fashioned the suction cups to the floor, lifting the tentacle away so that it pulled on the floor without losing its grip. I cannot stress enough again, uh, again at this point that this is a giant squid pleasuring a building. And once again, we have the element of surprise at its finest, because as with 90% of fan fiction I've come across, there's that whole, sure, it starts out as sexual assault, but then they realize they love it thing. Oh, and hey, remember the squid's dream of becoming an actor? The squid has an inner monologue in which it thinks to itself that it really should have done this ages ago. But nothing, absolutely nothing I share with you about this story can prepare you for the description of a sentient castle being brought to shuddering orgasm. I promise you this. It goes as follows. Water shot out of faucets. Toilets overflowed and bread set in ovens to keep, to keep warm by thoughtful house elves exploded. Hogwarts shook violently to its foundations, rousing Filch from bed and sending house elves and Mrs. Norse scrambling for cover. Now I know what you're thinking. Wait, there was still fucking staff in the building when all this was going on? What the fuck? Yeah, I know, and it's okay to cry, because I did, because this simultaneously ruined my ability to ever enjoy Harry Potter, giant squids, or buildings ever again. Thanks a lot, jerk who wrote this. And there's way more of this shit out there, too. There's one where Clay from Sons of Anarchy and Cookie Monster from uh, Sesame Street bond over cookies, and then, of course, become lovers. Uh, one where Bella and Edward from the Twilight Saga take over the hosting duties of The Price is Right, and then fuck all over the place. And then one, of course, where Professor X has a three-way sex with Magneto and Hannibal Lecter. But, if I'm being completely honest, my absolute favorite is where is the one where Goku, the protagonist from Dragon Ball Z, falls in love with Anne Frank, and then they fight Super Hitler. Because that exists. Oh, man. Alright. Now, as if that wasn't enough, I've been looking into movie posters from other countries. Because they are just the, the level of insanity that is just absolutely like you look at it and you wonder if like you, you start to question the reality you live in you say did somebody slip me acid am i on an acid trip right now no chances are you're just looking at a movie poster from poland or czechoslovakia and this is a list of movie posters from around the globe that have no clear correlation to the movies they're supposed to the rebel to represent the first one is jaws 2 the sequel to jaws and the the <clears throat> poster comes from poland and you should already know by what I just told you that Polish movie posters are insane. But I've never seen the essence of uh, Polish insanity so perfectly captured in the piece of art as I did with the poster for Jaws 2. So picture it. A designer comes in with an assignment to draw, to draw a movie for a, draw a poster for a movie titled Jaws 2 about a shark. Now, the Polish poster designer stops painting white out on their computer screen and asks about how, how a movie about one shark could be called Jaws 2. Now, after an all-night brainstorming session, they arrive at a conclusion. Take the poster from the first movie and crudely Photoshop it. 
what you end up with is a poster depicting one shark with two separate sets of jaws because that is a creature that a always clearly existed and b would be a larger threat than a great white shark that only possesses one set of jaws and that's the poster for jaws from poland now if you go to spain and you like the movie the godfather i urge you to check out the poster for the godfather from spain now i assume that when i first saw this that it was the Spanish poster for The Godfather was based on an early draft of the script where young Michael Corleone must choose between a life of managing his <clears throat> family's world-renowned spaghetti restaurant or his dreams of becoming a world champion pl chess player. Because that's literally the entire fucking poster. There's a fork with spaghetti on it and a chessboard. The entire fucking poster. That's it. Godfather. Spain. If you go back to Poland, you might find that Mel Brooks hit Young Frankenstein. I love Young Frankenstein. It's a Mel Brooks comedy starring Gene Wilder as Dr. Frankenstein's grandson and Marty Feldman as Crazy Eyes Igor. So naturally, the Polish, for no other reason than being the Polish, decided that the best representation of this wacky comedy was to draw a hooded figure with half of his, with half of his face skin peeled off and his own mechanical hand, forcing the remaining half to grin and bear it. Now, staying in Poland... There's the poster for the classic Charlton Heston film, Planet of the Apes. And their poster for Planet of the Apes promised a squid-handed ape monster with Michael Jackson's fashion sense, barrel-chested men in uh, Victoria's Secret gear uh, posing, and flame-haired women orgasmically screaming out Charlton Heston's name. Because, you know, what other way is there for a woman to call out Charlton Heston's name? Gone with the Wind, also from Poland. To symbolize the Civil War era love story that's been ranked number four greatest movie of all time, those kooky Polacks went with something any idiot could understand. A drawing of an electric fan with hearts in place of blades. Thus, capturing the fact that it's a love story that has the word wind in the title. Also in Poland, the uh, poster for The Exorcist I urge you to look up. Because according to Poland, The Exorcist is about Satan taking a liquid poo into the cranial cavity of a naked little girl while looking smug. Either that or he's sucking her brains directly into his asshole, which uh, is what takes place in the sixth circle of hell, if I remember my Dante correctly. Um, also from Poland, the movie poster for Gremlins. Apparently in Poland, Gremlins was out about an evil jack-in-the-box who was violently intent on devouring the head of a man dressed as Santa Claus. And it also seems as if this particular jack-in-the-box was shipped in a box labeled for bombs and explosives. Ah, let's get let's do an MCU one. Let's do an MCU Polish poster. How about Iron Man? Ah, yes, Iron Man. Who could forget the first Iron Man movie in which, according to those perfectly sane and normal people of Poland, Robert Downey Jr. plays a man who gets a gigantic iron nut stuck over his head, and the plot revolves around his journey to accept his new limitations. Either that, or it's about some mechanic with an odd fetish. Uh, Poland's poster for War of the Worlds was. You remember when Martians attacked Earth only for our environment to kill them because they couldn't handle basic bacteria? Well, according to the movie poster for Poland, that isn't even close to what the film is about. It's clearly about some horrible mutant with teeth half the size of his face who had his face affixed into a permanent smile by a large leather belt. The Polish poster for Braveheart has... Uh, I guess Poland decided that Braveheart was all about William Wallace's leg hair and his struggle against the English to continue wearing a kilt rather than putting on pants. Uh, there's also an army of silhouetted Scotsmen at his feet showing that he was indeed 10 foot tall and ready to fight a war for the freedom of freeballing. Um, Rocky II from Poland. The rematch of the century between heavyweight champion Apollo Creed and Italian stallion Rocky Balboa. How best to encapsulate that in, in a way that will bring audiences in and put asses in seats? Well, if you were in Poland walking past the theater in 79, that poster would have been, the poster you would have seen would have been the words Rocky II and a four-leaf clover made out of boxing gloves. Now, seeing that Apollo Creed was African-American, Mickey Goldmill was Jewish, and 99% of the rest of the cast was Italian. What the fuck does an Irish symbol of look have any luck have anything to do with Rocky II? I don't know. Ask the ask the Pollocks. Uh, the Blues Brothers, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. The Blues Brothers. Their Polish poster really nailed it with this one. Uh, it's that absolute classic in which Dan Aykroyd and John Pelushi played well a, a set of well-dressed conjoined twins who travel around town with all of their limbs flapping wildly out of control and at all different lengths with extra joints at random places. Ooh, Cabaret, the, the, the famous musical Cabaret 
for the Polish poster, uh, per the per, per the Polish poster of Cabaret, the film is apparently about Liza Minnelli's head growing four legs after adorning itself with high th- with thigh high leather boots, and then goes strolling around town as their faces pulled in many painful in many directions painfully. And lastly, last but not least, Ghostbusters. Now this poster is from Czechoslovakia, but based on this poster alone. Ghostbusters was about a gigantic wooden nightmare cyborg and his attempt to sodomize Chewbacca with its enormous wooden phallus as Chewbacca leaps from rooftop to rooftop across New York in hopes of escaping. Uh, It seemingly has no arms and its wooden cork peg eyes can only look into the heavens so it sniffs out Chewbacca's whereabouts with its distinctly long elephant trunk of a nose which for some reason has a shower head attached to the end. I guess to increase the range of its smelling? I don't really know. Anyway, that has been posters from around the world, fan fiction. This has been the element of surprise. I thank you for tuning in. I thank you for listening. And uh, as I said at varying points during the episode, check out a fireside chat. Check out 4AM knows all my secrets. Check out McSauce. Check out uh, Case in Point. And as usual, cue the fucking bear music.